Welcome to Growing Up Fire with Jamie Coots. Seahawk, it is our commitment to you that you have complete access to the top professionals, industry experts, and products for your fire service. We stand by the service and products we provide. We are proud of our past, and we are constantly listening to our customers and exploring new ways to bring better options to the fire service. This is Seahawk. High level, safety, service, security. Please visit our website at www.seahawkservice.ca or give us a call at 1-888-791-4210. All right, welcome to Growing Up Fire, Season 3, Episode 8. And I got to tell you, I've been nervous all day to have you in here. I got Dr. David Griffin with on a mission in here right now, Assistant Chief in Charleston, South Carolina. And I got to tell you, thanks for coming out. Yes, sir. Glad to be here. Looking forward to it. <laughs> it's not just because of the accent. I love the accent, too. I have an accent? Yeah. Like, wow. Not down here, but... <laughs> accent wasn't bad at all. I've been getting uh, lots of about my accent. I guess it's weird down here. It's obvious that you're from Canada. 100% A. (laughs) Oh no. Now we got to get them netted out all the A's that I say. Awesome. So I want to just start with this as we get ready for the show and we're going to talk about a lot of things today. One of the things I wanted to really look up was on a mission and kind of frame that a bit for the people that maybe haven't been to one of your lectures before or don't understand the message that you're trying to get out there to the fire service. And so for me, I just went straight to my old faithful Webster's Dictionary, right? And in there, the meaning of on a mission is undertaking a task one considers to be a very important duty. And the definition of duty is a task or action that someone is required to perform. And so knowing you, the little bit that I know you now, I know that it wasn't a mistake that you picked on a mission. You want to just talk about that a little bit? It kind of came to me one day when I started to go through my process of getting my life back together and learning about myself and learning about the event. And I don't know, I felt like one day I was just kind of on this mission to figure out myself and to figure out things that I did wrong, like coming through the fire service. And then as a professional too, professional firefighter, I wanted to figure out how we could make sure that other people don't go through a situation that I went through or my department went through in the future. And that's really what the mission was. And it kind of just came out of nowhere. And I just started running with it internally. And then it kind of just started being a part of my everyday living. It was kind of part of, as I grew up, I always saw things I wanted to try and I wanted to do. I didn't want to shy away from anything. I always wanted to try things. And that's really turned into my life's mission, on a mission. On a mission, love it. Uh, I just, as I read those definitions and I just thought to myself, seeing your presentation a couple times, talking to you the times that I have, I just, I really feel like you're on a mission to improve the fire service and to help us learn, right? And so that's great. I want to talk a little bit about how I met you and because I almost didn't meet you and that would have been a mistake for me. And, and so part of that always training, always learning the stuff that we talk about all the time, I was in Carmen, Manitoba. And uh, one of the guys I work with, Ben, had said to me, I got this guy coming in, we're having a full day session and then we're gonna have supper. And it was on the weekend, so it was a Saturday and I didn't have anything work-wise till Monday. And I was like, oh, I've been so busy. You know, I think I'm just gonna uh, take it easy at the hotel. I'm just gonna do my own thing. and and catch up on work and and so as I was sitting there just watching some TV I really started to kind of beat myself up this is not always training this is not always learning 
And that was even before those were things we were trying to live by. And so I got my lazy butt up in the morning there and I, I came out to the presentation. And I have to tell you that that moved me probably more than any speaker has ever moved me since I joined the fire service. I would safely say probably more than any speakers ever moved me in my life. I don't know if it was the timing, the message, a combination of those things, but it was an incredible day that still leaves me kind of speechless when I think about it. Well, you're the opposite on a mission. You're staying in your hotel room, not morning train. So that's what I'm trying to prevent. Uh, the way I always go back to it is I beat myself up a lot of times when there's opportunities to learn and to go train and just talk with people. And the thing I always say is, what else would you be doing? When someone says, well, I want to do this, and so my response is, so what else would you be doing? What are you going to watch TV? Or, you know? And so for me, that's always been something I've thought even when I was a little kid because my dad, he always taught me like, hard work is important. You dedicate yourself to something, you commit yourself to something, and you improve throughout your life. And my dad exhibited that as being a radio personality. For 44 years, that's what he did. He got up in the morning at 2.30 a.m. and was a radio personality. And he didn't start out as good as he ended up. He started out trying to learn the job and really perfecting his skill set. And he was always learning. Even to the last day he retired, he was trying to make it better. And it was interesting, when he did retire, after those years on the job, he went into his office, he packed up his box, and he, and he walked out in one day. He didn't give a notice. He just said, you know, I've done it. I've learned as much as I can. This is when social media was starting, and my dad was trying to, I mean, he started with eight tracks. And now he start, he's, going, he's going through tapes, CDs, digital, and now they're starting social media. And it was just not his, his skill set of doing that. And he knew that he had given everything he could, and he, he retired. And I always thought that was really cool because he stayed dedicated to one place, 44 years he had opportunities to go to a lot of places, but he said, I'll never do it. I'm committed. And I, I took that from what he did, and that really changed who I am and to why I focus so specifically on being on a mission and trying to teach people to train and educate themselves. You have to get out there and do something. You have to push yourself because it's not so much motivation. It's, it's more discipline. If you're disciplined and you learn something every day and you continue that for 20 and 30 years, you're going to improve. Yeah, for sure. And I find myself sometimes sitting on the couch watching TV trying to say, I'm trying to find balance, right? Yeah. Am I resetting my brain today or am I just being lazy today? Right? That's a hard balance, especially if you're very ambitious to do things in your life. It's hard to sit down sometimes and do nothing because when you're doing nothing, that's actually beneficial for recovery and mental stability, but you want to be doing something. Yeah, you can't be doing it all the time. You can't. You can't. <laughs> you could can be too relaxed, maybe. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right on. So anyways, I went. I'm glad I went. That was incredible. Later on, I had the opportunity to bring you to Chestermere, mm -hmm. Alberta, and I uh, got to see you again and, and talk to you. And this time, I looked at it a lot more as a chief officer. I sat back and I watched the staff that I worked with and I watched my friends that had come from other towns. Some had come from hundreds of miles away to watch the presentation. And in the morning, I got a little nervous because I was like, I was kind of like a hype man for weeks ahead of the talk of, you know, this guy's coming and it's incredible and the message is incredible. And of course, you get a little nervous. Your friends start to show up and, and your coworkers start to show up and you're like, oh, I hope he's good today. You crushed it. You weren't even gone from the station yet and they were already doing some of the things that you'd been talking to them about. I remember. And I don't feel like, you know, at the start, they were a bit taken back, right? The start of the presentation is awesome and, and powerful. And, but by the end, everyone's just doing the things that they do. And to this day, 
I could almost use it as a threat and say, hey, you want me to get Dr. David Griffin back and <laughs> tune you guys up again? Because it's just so powerful for them to remember the words that you said. And so all the people that came from far away were super happy. I know that you're coming back in, in the near future and, and we'll be out there again. And uh, you know, guys line up to talk with you and to, to hear what's going on. So thanks for doing that. Absolutely. Uh, keep up the good work. It's amazing stuff. Yesterday we were out and we went down to the Charleston Nine Memorial and had a look around and, and uh, I have to tell you the weight that I felt being there, which is hard to say to you because I can't imagine the weight that you uh, have as you're there. But you know we're standing on the Savannah Highway and you start to look at the the whole stretch that had to happen and you start to look at you know the, the parts of the presentation start to come out. Here's where the building was and then you get to the, the memorials for the nine and, and you look at it and you start to put all the pieces together and I mean you could close your eyes and still see what was going on and smell the smells and hear what's going on. That was a heavy, heavy, heavy day for me. Yeah, it's heavy for a lot of people. We have 56 left out of the original 246 in our department. So there's 56 internal that come to work every day that it's really heavy because as they come to work, some of them have to drive by there, some of them work at the station next door. And then now think about the individuals who have retired since then, that's hundreds. And it's just, it's just as heavy or heavier for them. So there's a lot of people that it impacts. And we always try to remember that it impacts people differently. Like the way I feel about it is different from someone else. There could be some that can't go back to the site. And that was me for quite some time. But I've actually tried to turn that into a positive site as in look at the site, see what it taught us collectively as a department, and then try to share that with the fire service so other people learn. Because it is a heavy site. When you walk out there and you see where they were found and you can kind of process everything that happened that day, it makes it very real. And that's why we're so focused on the site to be such an important memorial site, because we don't want it just to be a piece of land that something else was built on top of. There's a lot of line of duty deaths that have occurred. And if you go to where they happen, there's another building right where firefighters sacrificed their life. And we didn't want that. So our city's done a great job. It's taken us quite some time to get it, the funding and the, the drawings and everything right. And we're still working on that. But we want people to come there and learn about what happened. We want it to be an educational piece. So when they walk away, yes, it was heavy, but they feel there's a benefit from what they saw and those nine guys sacrificed so others can be better. It's very, very powerful. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, that sacrifice is what makes it so heavy. Nine people that do the job that you do every day sacrifice their lives trying to stop that from happening and to rescue the people that were missing that day and just be there. That was all. I got to thank you for, I think the number one thing is for challenging me, you know, to say, hey, get over here. Mm -hmm. And if you're ever around, let's go there and, and yeah. I'll show you. That's why we're here. And that's why we did that. But then the second is to just take the time to, I guess, be there okay. with us to help us process the, the heaviness of that and to share that message. And, and I know I haven't been around a lot of duty deaths. I've been to some pretty big disasters and, you know, you feel the weight. You wear that every single day. And, and I often talk about being a fire chief of a town that 35% of it burned down in wildfires. It doesn't make you feel like the greatest fire chief. And working with people side by side and some of them don't make it home that night, that weight is incredible. It's always there. And it'll always be there. And even after the last person that's still on the job leaves, it'll still be in the department. That's why we're working so hard to educate our new members because once we're all gone, Someone's got to be able to educate the rest of the department, the rest of the fire service. We want it to continue to be a learning experience on what happens you know, on June 18th, and we're really focused on that. 
So I, I think our, our members have really bought into it and they've been engaged and they work really hard to understand what happened. They learned that in recruit school their first week. So we set them up so they know like who the firefighters were that passed away, what they stood for and how they've changed our department. I think it goes a long way to set them up for success. 100%. So we'll just keep kind of going down that trail, right? We talk about always learning and always training and, and these pieces that go on. So let, let's go back to some of your first presentations about this, because I don't think that could have been an easy time or an easy thing to talk about. I get 100% why you felt like you had to share it, why it was important for us all to learn from the sacrifice. So let's go back to those first few presentations and talk about that. This actually started as me going to a conference and learning. I went to FDIC in 2012. When I went to FDIC, it was my first time I'd ever gone to a conference, anytime I'd gone to training outside of my department. So like, it was a whole new world for me. And this is only 11 years ago. So I walked in and I was totally taken back because I didn't realize that there was that big of a world out there for the fire service. So I mean, I'm taking it all in. I'm going to exhibits, I'm looking at things at booths, I'm going to classes and I, I just like sensory overload. So I go to a class and there's a, there's a gentleman teaching a class and it's actually about apparatus positioning. And as that gentleman is talking through the class, he's putting different pictures of events and where the apparatus is parked. And it's a few minutes into the class and I'm there with some of the people from my department. And he puts a picture on the overhead and it's actually a picture of June 18th, 2007 from one of the reports. And it's me standing at the pump panel trying to figure out what I'm doing. And he goes into talking about how that apparatus had to be moved because it was in the wrong position, which it was 100% in the wrong position, but it wasn't moved. It stayed there overnight until the investigations were completed and then it was put back into service. So when that person said that, it was very tough for me to take that in the class because he just didn't know what he didn't know. He wasn't trying to say anything that was incorrect. He thought that it had to be moved because when you look at it, you would think in the middle of an event, you have to move that. But when I saw that, it kind of lit a fire in me because I saw someone who didn't have the proper information, who read some reports, but then were talking about an event that they weren't at. They had never come to our city. They didn't know who we were, our culture. They didn't know the nine firefighters. And it really like, it bothered me. And what I started to see were there were a lot of people talking about this event who again had never been to Charleston, had never talked to any of us to see what happened. They read some reports, which are great, but there's some stuff that aren't always in reports based on like a cultural issue. So that was really the uh, motivating point for me. I said, I want to do something so people understand what good, bad, or indifferent what happened that day. We were good people with good intentions. We went to work on June 18th and we wanted to have a good outcome, but we didn't know what we didn't know. And I wanted to present that because I felt there's a lot of departments, which there are, they just don't know. They're not bad people. They don't want to do anything wrong. They don't want to operate unsafely. You just don't know because you're always successful. When you're always successful, you normalize that behavior because you're always successful. But then when you have a consequential moment, it makes you wake up. So that's how I wanted to present it. And I knew the first presentation, I wanted to do it at FDIC if I could. So I put in an application with FDIC and it got, it got accepted. So I knew I was going to go to this large fire conference the following year and present to a lot of people. And I'd really never stood in front of anyone talking about the fire service. So I was really nervous. So before that, I had to get my administration to watch the presentation and to see what was uh, taking place because they wanted to make sure that what I was talking about was accurate with everything. And we had someone on the command staff then, he was with us for close to 40 years at that point. He was all good with everything. He said, everything you said needs to be said and it's, it's, it's professional and you're just, you're stating facts. And that meant a lot to me. So then I go to FDIC and that first class was April 25th of 2012. 
And I remember that morning I woke up and I was really nervous, you know, I caught in mouth and my wife was with me. So I was trying to, you know, talk with her to kind of loosen myself up. And once I got in front of the class, I felt all right, but I could tell that I was super nervous. But once I got into talking about the synopsis of the event, I felt better. And I also had people from my department, high ranking chief officers in that class. And so they're watching, you know, how I'm presenting it. And I'm, I want to make sure I'm respectful and I'm saying everything that's truthful about the event. I didn't want to give opinions. I wanted to give facts. And once I finished, like the weight of the world, like fell off my shoulders and I, you know, I was upset. And, you know, some of the guys from my department came up and we talked through it. But that was really the first one. And then from there, it just kind of started to progress to other departments. I went to Seattle Fire Department. That was really my second my second one, and that was even more nerve-wracking because I'm at Seattle and I'm and this guy from Charleston trying to figure out what I'm doing here. But as I learned over time, I was trying to really get that message to a streamlined point to where people understood what it was. And the whole message was, you don't know what you don't know. And I think over time, as it's gotten to be more clear and people understand it, they respect it more and they realize why I'm doing it. I think when I started it, people were concerned and they didn't agree with it. I've been doing this now 10 years this month, and I think people realize it wasn't something I just wanted to do two times. I mean, this is eight or 900 times I've done this now in different departments, and it means something to me. It's not just something I do because I'm bored, because I want to go to all these places. It's, it's kind of overtaking my life because I want people to get the message. Right. If I don't talk about it, who else is going to talk about it? I don't want people to think I've never heard of June 18th or I've never heard of the Charleston Nine. And if that means I have to continue to talk about it, then I'll continue to talk about it. Yeah, I, I think that that's the tough part is uh, getting started. You got to convince yourself to do it, all right? And then there's always the people out there like, talking about your motives, right? Why would they talk about this and who wants to talk about this? But I think there's there's some healing. There's there's some, you know, take a step forward in, in this, right? You know, how do you walk 100 miles? You, you take a step. Right. And so, as you did the presentations, I mean, obviously, your nervousness start, and so that shows up in presentation. You're not nervous now. Your presentation is great, and it, and it really, I think, honors the sacrifice that they made and talks about the event in a way that you can kind of understand how to move forward and, and how to fill in the gaps, mm-hmm. right? If, if you don't know what you don't know, how do you right. figure out what you don't know so you can move forward? And, and so, those parts of it, I love it. So over time, you get that drive, right? And you've said now eight or nine hundred times, and, and you're going. How, how long do you think you'll stay with it? How long do you think you'll keep doing presentations? I'm committed to it. I don't have any want to stop. It's 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 important to me. That's why I came to do the podcast. It's important that people hear this message. You know, I, if I don't talk about it, who's going to talk about it? That's what I always go back to. Right. I have to because I wanted to. It's not just something that I I say or it's I, I live it every single day. I live my message, and I think that's important. I think it's authentic because I'm still on the job. I'm not retired. I'm still trying to put my best foot forward. I don't know everything. I'm trying to learn my new position, and I think that comes across as credible and authentic because I'm still, I'm a person that on an event, I was trying to figure out what I was doing and it was very traumatic for our whole department, but I continued with it to figure it out and put the pieces back together and try to help our department grow. And with our 56 that are still there, they're still doing that too. I mean, we have battalion chiefs, we have captains, we have a deputy chief that was there. 
We have a captain in the training division that was there. So we have people that have really grown from that event to give back to our department in the fire service. And that's what I'm really proud of because it's not just me. There's a lot of people that do a lot of different activities to make sure these nine are remembered. And that's what I always go back to. If someone picks to be in a position to lead an organization because of that event, they're doing their part. We have one of the individuals that was on the event as a fire chief of another organization. That's how he's taken that event and he's now going to another department and changed their culture. So that's how he's carrying the nine. So that's how I always remember it. And everybody has picked from that event who was there and on the job, they've picked a piece of our department or a larger scale to make it better. And that's really what's exciting to me because I can look at them and I know I know what they're feeling and I know what they've chosen to be their focus to honor those nine guys. And it's, it's pretty powerful. It's pretty cool to feel that. It is. And then to share that message, like, yeah. you know, you impacted everybody at both the presentations I went to, but I had guys come up after talking about their, their first big fire that they pumped at in there. Right. The first time that they had to be the first one through the door. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so there's pieces of your presentation that everybody can relate to. And then there's the sacrifice that people can't relate to. Right? Nobody knows what yeah you feel there. I think that you can see the drive from that is to how do we all get better, right? Mm-hmm. And so we got to appreciate that. They see themselves in the presentation. That's something I always say, whether we're talking about leadership, mental health, resiliency. There's some point in that presentation about any of those topics that you're going to see yourself, whether you're a firefighter or you're the fire chief. It doesn't matter. We've all experienced that. And I think that's why people gravitate towards those messages because they're human and they felt that before the difference is they felt it and they've been thankfully lucky enough to never have an, an incident most of them to where it's been something as significant as us and i think when they look through it through that lens they realize that wow there's been some times that that could have been us and we're very lucky it hasn't been us so maybe it's time to turn our training up and our education and really our seriousness so it doesn't happen to us and that's usually what they walk away with my hope is that they continue that and in two months, two years, five years, they don't get complacent and then have to go find that discipline again. Because right. again, I go back to discipline and that's a big focus right now in all professions. It's not every morning you're going to wake up and be motivated and inspired, but you have to be disciplined to do what you're supposed to do. You're disciplined to get up and go to work and whatever your position is, whether you're running a budget to make sure that the budget is running accordingly or whether you're running a sports team, it doesn't really matter. But that discipline allows you to be successful and then help the others in your department to be successful, too. It's awesome. I, I actually can't wait for a few more years to go by and, and the people I work with, they, they took the challenge pretty serious. And we're excited to have you back in a few years and, and kind of see the changes and, and some of the things that happen and, and kind of driven from that to that moment, right? So excited about that. You do a lot of things that people are terrified of, right? You speak in public, you speak to big groups, you're carrying the weight of a sacrifice that's, that's hard to imagine and, and trying to spread that word. You write books, you're doing the presentations and the lectures and the, And so I want to just take a minute and talk about how do you cope with all that? How do, how do you handle all of those things? It's a lot and it's very interesting to me because on the outward appearance, you probably think I'm an extrovert, but I'm really not. I like my time to where it's quiet. I'm at peace. I'm by myself, you know, reading a book or something. But I know that to do what I have to do, there's a certain place I have to go to be able to do that. And I'm okay with that. If you put me in front of 10,000 people to talk about leadership or anything, I feel totally fine. If you put me in a small group for small talk... I'm a fish out of water. I struggle with that. And I know that's one of my weaknesses. And I've always been that way. I'm always so focused on a task 
And I think that's one of my weaknesses that I've tried to work on is it's because my message is always in how I talk. It's everything that I do. So I have to kind of work on that and frame that a little bit differently. But it's a lot, I mean, but it keeps my mind occupied. It's a good distraction. It's positive. I pick positive distractions because for a while I picked negative distractions. So writing is therapeutic to me. Speaking is therapeutic to me. During COVID, we shut down operations for traveling for quite some time. And that was tough. I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't even talking online with podcasts. And I felt it. Like I felt I needed to do my class. I needed to talk about leadership. So what I did is once a month over those period of time, I did a class for myself to make sure I was keeping up with my skill set because I didn't want to come back and, and be rusty on my skills. And that really did help. But like I need to talk about these things because I'm so passionate about it. And the longer that I do it and the more experience I get with leadership inside our department, but with other people, I realize that I have a little different viewpoint of it, but I think I have a really good feeling and understanding of what makes people want to belong to a group and want to engage in a group. And I'm still learning some pieces of that, but it's just so fun and exciting to me. I can't get enough of it. And that's why I'm always doing something. I'm just a very restless person. (laughs) Yeah, I can totally understand for sure. People say to me all the time, well, can't you just take a day off? And I said, well, I did have a day off yesterday. And like, yesterday you worked like 10 hours at the fire hall and then you went home and sent out two quotes and then you did a podcast and then I was like, yeah, it was like a day off, but I only worked 14 or 15 hours yesterday. But that's what you enjoy. Oh, I love it. That's what yeah. you enjoy. I think the newer generation is teaching us something a little different. And that's something I'm really gravitating towards is because the younger generation, they, they really enjoy their time off. And I think we need to do better at that. We need to set that example because when we do that, I think we have a better work-life balance and I think everything works out better. Your, your personal life is better. Your professional life is better. It's just a challenge for us because that's not the way I was raised was you just work. You just work, work, work. And that's just what I know. And But I'm trying to get better at that because not everybody's built that way. And that could get to a point to where it's just a little too much. Yeah, we're gonna snap back to that, talk about those generational changes. But you talked about something that I want to go back to, and you probably don't love talking about this, and sorry to make you talk about yourself, but but your books. I bought some the first time, I bought some more the second time. Every single time was specific. So the, the book about the tattoos, right? Both my kids have tattoos, they love tattoos, they talk about them all the time. I don't have any tattoos, but they're starting to get covered in them, and, and they love it. And so both of them read your book, and we're like, wow, we can still relate to this, and right. we can still... And so very powerful, right? I read the book, you know, like your presentation in a book sort of thing, all the different things, and you can remember everything. And then you guys have a book with your company and talking about disposes and the impact. And, the, and so I think that my wife definitely read that one and, and felt the impact of that. I've looked into writing a book, and it's a lot of work. And so that you have so many books, says to me, you have a lot of sleepless nights. I do. Writing is very therapeutic for me, though, and that's usually what I do is when I can't sleep. Writing is interesting to me, and it's funny. When I was in high school, I would write certain things, and I had a teacher, and she always said, you should be a writer, and I laughed at her because, I mean, I was 15. I didn't know. But over time, like in college, I enjoyed writing, but I didn't take it serious. And then once I started to start talking about leadership and resiliency and mental health, I started to write articles and then that kind of turned into writing a book. And then it's a lot to organize because it's first you have to 
figure out how it's going to be laid out, like your chapters, what the specifics of each chapter are, and then you just need you have to write them and how long do you want it to be, how short do you want it to be. And what I've learned is I have to write it like internally first. And it's kind of a weird process. It's got to fester. Like I just got to feel it like marinating and festering. And then, then I'm, I have to just get up and start typing. And I just go into this like trance to where I'm just typing for days. Like one of the books I wrote in two and a half days, I was, I was traveling to, I think I was traveling to Alaska and I knew I had flight after flight after flight. And all I did was I put my headphones in and after I got on the plane, I just started typing. I got off the plane, I took an Uber to the hotel, I walked in the hotel, I put my book down, my books down, opened my computer and just kept writing. I wrote all night until the next morning and then I went and taught the next morning. I was on like this binge of writing because I had to get it out. Because for me, I think that's how writers feel is that once it hits them, you have to just go into it and get it finished. And then once you're done, the hardest part for me is the editing line by line, because I want it to be perfect in grammar, but I also want it to be perfect in how you read it, that it's my voice. I don't want it to be hard to follow. I want it to be easy. Now I know the first one that I did, that was a research project specifically for that. I wanted to write that with no emotion because of the topic, but the other ones obviously have emotion and a lot of feeling inside. But it's a hard process, but you can do it. You just have to put your mind towards it and just and just go. Nice. Once you start, you won't stop. Yeah. But it's definitely not easy. <laughs> I didn't think so. And that many, right? Like it's uh, that's a lot of stuff to have in your head and to have to get it done. So thanks for writing the books. Thanks for taking yes, sir. your time. There's more to come. I'm working on one now. It's just right. gonna be a little <laughs> be a little time before it comes out. Just take another trip to Alaska. Maybe that's yeah. what I need to do. <laughs> All right, so this next part, just whatever you feel comfortable sharing. We don't have to, you know, I have no expectations here, but I want to talk a little bit about, we're going to talk about some low points. So let's start with some high points. What are some high points in your career? The high points in my career, I would say the high point is that I'm still on the job in the organization I love, committed to making it better, learning the people, learning the processes, and I've stuck with it. It bothers me every day. It weighs heavy on me. There's decisions that I make every day at work that weigh very heavy on me. But I take that very serious because I'm proud to make that decision. It's easy not to make the decision. I could say, you know what, I'm not gonna worry about it, but I don't wanna do that. I wanna challenge myself to be engaged to make it better. So when I leave the department one day, I know that I did what I could to make it better for the people after me because of what their sacrifice was. And that's important to me. I care, I want our people to be successful. There's times I'll go and do professional development with people that are really trying to help themselves with like their soft skill set. They're trying to get better with talking with people and leading their crew. And that's something I love because if you've taken the time to ask for help, like you really want to get better. So to me, that's like invaluable. I'd rather do that all day. I'd love to go to stations all day where people want to ask to improve on these different pieces because really professional development, it's so important because a lot of times like as leaders, we get so engaged in day-to-day operations But a leader, you have day-to-day operations, but a leader, your whole point is to make sure you're developing everyone behind you so it just continues to be successful and to be better. I want the person that takes my position as the assistant chief of administration to be way better than I ever was. That's the goal. And I feel like if I don't coach and mentor and help and someone's not, then I didn't do my piece. And I think that's very important to me. And that's, that's the highest point in my career every day. That's what I love to do. It's not about the rank that I'm still here trying to contribute and, and make a difference. I love those pieces and I love how you put it, right? I often talk about that, like, we all have the budget frustrations, right? And the higher you go, the more time you spend with the budget. But at the end of the day, what's important to us is firefighter safety and 
every line in the budget is about firefighter safety, right? Every line in the standard operating guideline policy procedure is about firefighter safety. It's definitely something I had to learn as I switched from operational to, to the chief and part of it was that, you know, just because I'm on the wheelie chair gang doesn't mean that my job is lesser. In fact, it's, you know, continues to be pressure to ensure that there's firefighter safety in at every step, right? When I was put into this position, I, I went to the companies and I set up battalion-based meetings to where I would go there and I would present our budget. So I showed them our general ledger, which shows them how much money we have in every line item. I wanted to explain like the nuances of it because for me, I was there for 17 years and I had no idea how our budget worked. And I took that like kind of personal because I thought, man, I've been here 17 years and I know I was operations, but I should have an idea how this works, where our money goes, how it flows. And I felt that that was a very engaging time. So I did it with all of our battalions over a period of like three months. And I felt when we were in those classes, like they were very engaged and there it was interesting and they were asking questions and it was really neat. And I tried to make it really fun. I tried, I made fun of myself because it was it was kind of funny to me as I started to do these different things. I was, you know, say I'm a paper pusher or it was just fun, but they bought into it because they really understood that the budget is important. And I think once I created that interest, they were asking me questions that made us do things differently with our budget because I was thinking about it from their perspective. So it was really cool. I try, I try to make budget exciting because it is, to me, it is exciting to get whatever that piece of equipment is on your rig to understand how many approvals it has to go through, where the money comes from. That's a really neat wheel in the background that I want people to understand. That discussion about change, right? Right. It uh, has many impacts mm -hmm. and we can octopus many tentacles that, that are in there. So for sure. Acres Emergency Vehicles, a message from our community. A person who is risking his or her life to save the lives and properties of others deserves something as reliable as an Acres Emergency Vehicle. This is our mission, to thank these people with the best gift we can, our best effort. Our commitment includes a firefighter-driven design, manufacturing integrity, personal and professional service. We are here to serve. We guarantee personal and professional service every step of the way. Acres Emergency Vehicles, built for a life of service. Please visit our website at www.acresev.ca. All right, so obviously losing your coworkers, your friends is the lowest part, but there's some struggles that come after that. And you wanna share a little bit about some of those struggles and how that goes? Personal struggles were big with my wife and my family and inside trying to figure out why I felt a certain way and how I could get through this but continue to go to work because I really I wanted to stay at work. I wanted to continue to do what I loved. I didn't realize that, you know, mental health was an issue in our profession and I started to feel certain things and my mind was kind of racing all over the place and I felt a lot of guilt and a lot of shame for what happened and I, you know, I felt guilty on my part for not knowing certain things on that day and it was really three or four years of me just trying to figure this all out. And that was really the lowest part because I, I just didn't feel good. I didn't feel good about myself. I didn't feel good about what I was doing for the department. I didn't feel good about what I was doing for anybody I worked with. And it was basically because I wasn't making any progress. I was just stagnant. I was afraid to move forward. I was afraid to move backwards. I just stayed like status quo because I didn't really know where should I go. We had so many new leaders. We had so many new people. And I wasn't sure who to trust or who has the information because we had so many people telling us that we 
we didn't do a good job or everything that we did was incorrect and that weighs heavy. And I was only there for a couple of years when this happened. Think about the ones that were there 20 and 30 years. I felt so much for them because for 20 and 30 years, they did the operations and the department the way that they believed and they loved it and it was successful. And then for a lot of people to come in and say, you have to change really everything, that had to be so hard for them. I mean, it was hard for me and I was two years. Imagine 30 years. So it's something I was always very uh, respectful of and cognizant of because I wanted to be respectful of them. It's a hard piece. We do a lot of that today where you're going in and people don't hire consultants that everything's going perfect, right? There's a problem or an issue or, or a struggle and, and so they call up and, and you go there. And The stuff you're talking about is the stuff that's the hardest, right? To see the 30, 40 year person's face when you say, hey, here's something you didn't know. Right. And then the blame. Right. Well, why didn't I know that? I should know that. Right. I should have did this. I should have did that. And then getting past that, like you say, so you struggle for a few years and then how do you travel 100 miles? You take a step right? Right. and right. another and another until you get to, to one destination and then you find another destination and you keep going. Absolutely. So, now, in all of this. There's some sacrifice for you as well, right? And I think that we wouldn't be doing ourselves any favor if we didn't talk a little bit about the sacrifice that it takes to continually give this message, to continually relive the tragic events of different situations, right? It plays a toll. So I talk all the time about ego, turf, time, and money, and how each tough decision that you have in your life could probably play back to one of those four things. And so what what were the big struggles the big sacrifices as you started to travel more and you started to talk more and you started to have all this feedback with people all over North America and probably farther than that. That was a challenge because at the time I was an engineer. I had maybe seven or eight years on the job, so I was still learning my culture and our new culture, and now I'm trying to take a message out to the fire service. That was hard for me because there was a lot of people I worked with that didn't understand why I was doing or what my message was. I was very aware of that, but I always remembered I would stick to my integrity, my ideals, and I would go out and present that message and hope over time they would understand what the message is. And over time, thankfully, they've understood that and they've been supportive and it's been neat to see some of the individuals who were curious or interested in how I was presenting certain things. They've actually grown into really good friends of mine and we've talked through a lot of stuff. And that's important to me because I wanted to be that person that can lead and educate our department, but also take that message to a bigger contingent of people outside of the department because those nine firefighters, they should be known all over the world, in my opinion. When you see that picture of Captain Lewis Mulkey or Mikey French, you should know who it is. It should be June 18th, Charleston. That's why I'm always putting their pictures up when I go to work, I have a run board that says a certain quote every day and the aide is always one of those nine and their name is on there in their picture because I want you to see it so much that it's, it's recognition. If you see that picture and say, hey, that's Mikey French from Charleston Nine, that means the world to us because that's that means you're remembering them. And so with that, through those years, I've just tried to continue to do that and present that positive message and really like present that to our department so they can carry that out when they go and talk with people. We have so many young firefighters now when they, they go out to the Soba Superstore site, if somebody's there, we want them to remember that it's the Charleston 9 Memorial site. It used to be the Soba Superstore, but it's the Charleston 9 Memorial site. That's what it's going to be remembered by. So it's those little pieces that really fit together that over time that we want to give those to our members, but everybody else in the fire service. It's tough, the struggles, right? The, the pressures on relationships with your coworkers yeah. oh, yeah. you talked about, with right. your wife having to be away as much as you are, how much you got to give. 
And then the social media side. And I want to talk a little bit about that because I know that we've talked about this before and we both have some of those same struggles. Is it kind of turns into job number three for you. So you're operational with a fire service, then you've got this lecturing and, and talking that you're doing, and then you have the social media side. And you don't want to miss a message and you don't want to miss an opportunity to teach and, and to also learn um, on the other side. But it's a big beast. And you got to feed the beast, right? It is. And it's important in today's world because that's how a lot of people get their different information. And that's really how they're influenced. And you want to influence people in the right manner, specifically if you have a message. And so that's how I always try to frame whatever my social media posts are, is that I want it to influence you to think differently. You may agree with it. You may not agree with it. But it's, it's really that influencing piece that I focus on. And I think that goes back to kind of my personality. We just did a personality profile of some of our leaders in our organization. It was interesting. I got it back and I'm in the influence part. That's what's important to me. And I see that in myself because if I can lend like a kind word or a kind text message or a phone call that lasts a minute and someone takes that like, wow, that really, that really kind of changed my day. Like that's my, I don't know that for some reason that drives me a lot because I would hope people would reciprocate that effort. And it's something that I've always tried to do. So that's how I frame my social media. But it is, it's a challenge. I'm not super engaged in it. I only do maybe a couple of posts a week because it's not, that's not my primary. I like my profession. I like going to work with the people I work with and I like to speak. That's why I don't have a lot of videos online. That's intentional. I don't, I'm an in-person kind of speaker because I want to make that connection with you. I don't think you can make that connection in a video as much as you can in person. And I know that could be a little bit less on the influential side because people are still gonna watch the videos, but I go back to that's not what that's not what I do. I wanna stand in front of you and talk with you and, and see you and feel what you're feeling. And I can do that when I'm standing in front of you because I can see how your emotions are driving you or what I'm saying is having an impact or it's not. It's a big part of what I do. But I try to focus, I wanna do the social media the right way. You know, I have different platforms. I have Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. I actually don't have Facebook anymore. I had Facebook for some time and then I've kind of transitioned out of that. But in my Instagram, my LinkedIn and my Twitter, I'm very... Facebook doesn't... Well, it was was just something that over time, I really enjoy the shorter pieces of it. The Instagram, the Twitter and the LinkedIn. I just think it's a better feeling for me. So that's why I went with that. Nothing against Facebook. It just didn't feel like it was my... It was where yeah, I was you don't get the big run-on posts and the, right. the four novels in one post. Right. I'm supposed to read it. Right. Because I think our, I think for us as adult learners and really anybody, we like quick piece of information. And I really think those other three platforms I have are more influential because you look at a picture, you look at a video real fast, and you move on. You're like, oh, that meant something. It's just more my style. I love and respect the pieces where you want to do it in person. Our podcast is the same. We don't record any over the computer. I'm not bashing anyone else that does that. They do what they do. We said right from the start, we just want to do it in person. I want to be able to look across the table, see your face, you know, see the surprise in something you're saying, or, or see if I'm saying something that's too emotional, we can move away from it or toward it, depending on how the conversation goes. And it just means a lot to me. And so... I'm the same thing. Like, I don't like to talk on the phone for hours and hours. I like to, here's my message. I got your message. We're done this conversation. Drives my mom nuts. I, she loves to talk to me for 14 hours. I'm like 14 seconds, got to roll along. And same with the lectures. Like, during COVID, you talked about it earlier, right? Being able to get online and, and do some classes. Right. And it was great. And I loved it that people reach out and then, you know, we'd have these great talks about things. But it would be, like, how do I watch 50 little squares on a computer and see your reaction? I can't. Very hard. And so I'm like you. I like to be in person. I like to, you know, be able to see that. 
the emotion on people's faces. So. And I don't like anything to be rehearsed. When I teach, whatever I teach, leadership, resiliency, mental health, I don't practice it. I go through my message and I make sure my high points and, and the information I want to give is still there so I can present it correctly. But when I started, I practiced, obviously. But now it's more of a free-flowing conversation with the class and feedback. And I think it's just more authentic. And I think people can gravitate towards that more. And I feel like it's the same thing with a podcast. Yeah. It kind of has to go where it has to go, right? Yeah. That's, uh, that's it's organic. Right on. So we talked a little bit about this earlier, but we're going to jump back to it. And for me, I think I turned 50 this year. And I start to see the end, right? Yeah, it might be 10 or 15 years or whatever. I'm a lot closer to the end than I, I am to start. And so I start to wonder, you know, what wrapping it up feels like or, or how you keep the message going. And, and you talked about, you know, their sacrifice has to mean something and someone has to be out there talking it. You don't want it to be someone else. So the pressure is on you and, and the people that work with you to continue to talk about it. So what's next? How do you keep this all moving and, and, and going forward? My passion is there. It's always there. I think about Coach K from Duke and Jim Beheim from Syracuse and think how much time they, they were in collegiate sports as coaches. But they stayed relevant because they were always trying to learn and progress and stay with the generation of athletes they brought in. And that's really my focus, too. I, I'm young. I have a lot, a lot of time left. I've chosen this as my profession and I've dedicated my life's work to leadership and mental health and resiliency and giving this message back. And I, I can't see me stopping at any time. And it's what I love to do. What else would I do? I mean, you can only go and do nothing for so long. I, you know, for me, I want to I wanna be able to look back on my life when I'm 85 years old and sitting on the porch and thinking that I, I contributed and made a difference. And, you know, maybe no one will remember that, but I'll know that when I look back that somewhere someone took something I said or I did as an example and it made them better. And that's important to me. And that's something I live with. And that's what my passion is. That's why I love to do all of these podcasts and write and, and go to classes and take classes and teach and just talk with people because it's all a journey and it's it's really important to me keep it all going all right you talked a little bit about generations there you know you get to go out and, and talk to hundreds and hundreds of firefighters every year and, and deliver a message to the 40 year guys we talked about right down to the four day people that uh, you probably end up with that recruit class people try to break them down into the different generations and the different things that go with that for me it's all about perspective right I think that you know, I see it in the fire service. You can give what you can give when you're 18, full of piss and vinegar, you want to learn everything, your brain is a big sponge. And then, you know, you're 50, you're giving something different, right? You're probably trying to give some knowledge back, sneak some in there at the same time, and all the different pieces in between. And so I think that the one thing that I would say that I see is the perspective on generation changes as my generation changes. As I get older, I look at it differently. And so when you look at, you know, the different firefighters that come in, and let's set a generation, let's break it up to the, the pro EU firefighter, right. the engineer who's got a little bit of experience, but they're moving on. You're moving up to an officer rank and, and then up to a chief rank. What do you see some of the changes going through the fire service right now? From what I've seen the last year being in this position and doing a couple of hiring processes, I see the attention to detail is just different. I'll give you examples. We were going through some applications today. And for me, if I was applying for a job as a new firefighter, I'd have a nice Word document. I would send it in an email. I would have my resume on a Word document, send it in an email. And But we're getting screenshots from phones that have a resume on it. So to me, when I see that, I'm thinking, wow, I would never do that. 
But it doesn't mean that candidate or that applicant isn't a good applicant. It means you have to really think that many of the younger candidates today, all they've had is a cell phone. They had a computer, but they did everything on their phone. A lot of people did school on their phone and that's normal to them. So that's the lens I have to change because to me, it's like, I would never do that. But I also have to realize that I'm in my forties and that they're in their, their 18 to 20 and it's just different. So I've really worked hard to adapt myself to how that process is because we, we need those firefighters. And what I've seen is they come in for an interview and they're, they're good to go. But I have to go back to, we have to teach them. So you see that if that's what they're doing and that's not your expectation, when you hire them and bring them in, now you teach them what you want them to do and how to be that professional firefighter. And over time it really grows. And then as they turn into a probie, you can help educate them on how to be a seasoned firefighter and an engineer. But you, you see the differences. You see the differences from chief officers to probies, how they communicate. The older firefighters, we like to communicate a lot more in person, talk on the phone. The newer firefighters, they love to text. I mean, most of the stuff you're going to get is a text message. And I'm a huge fan of text messaging. I text message. <laughs> trust me, I have a group of buddies I text message. We probably text message with each other more. I text my wife. I mean, it's every morning. It's like 6 o'clock. We're texting each other. What's going on? We're you know cracking jokes. and But I think that's our way of communicating. And we're at different levels in our career and different ages but I think it allows us to understand that and expand that out to the different generations we have in our department. I think it's just adapting. You have to adapt to the differences. You can't expect everyone to be where you are. You have to meet them where they are and then give them expectations. And it works out really well. I love it. I, I think uh, back to my first Zoom that I ever had to do. And you know, someone said, here's a link, you gotta have this Zoom. I don't know, I think it was for a job interview maybe or something. And, I remember getting two computers and we were practicing Zoom and right. the background and the, and today that's just like Zoom is it's not even a day if I didn't have some kind of Zoom meeting, exactly. right? And so it moves so fast. And for those right. young people that you were talking about, life is moving fast. That you know these phones and, and different electronic devices have changed the way that they learn and it just grows exponentially with every new electronic device. So you know I go out onto the bay floor. And uh, they're supposed to be training, and I see three people on a phone. Mm -hmm. Instantly, I can feel my face go purple, and right. I'm like, "Okay, I guess we're having a meeting here right away." About right. right. But then I'll wait, try to be cool, and and at the kitchen table later, we'll have a you know straight up phone conversations. And, mm -hmm. You know, what's with phones? And oh, you know, we we're doing some training today, Chief, and I was just looking up some new ways to throw a ladder, and right. we we're looking, at, and it's like, oh, if I would have just lost my mind right there on the bay floor, right. they would have missed out on some pieces that they were trying to look up, right? Now, the captain's sitting there. He's old enough to know what I'm talking about. Right. So he ends up in my office later and we have a different discussion about phones and expectations, but you do have to change with it and, and roll with it. So some good perspective there. You have to try to seek to understand. And I've always tried to do that as I've moved through the ranks to understand why certain things take place a certain way. And, you know, communication is different today. Communication is mostly text message or email. And when you get emails a specific way, it's just different. Like for me, I, when I send emails, it's always a good afternoon. I hope you're having a great day, blah, blah, blah. It's just, that's how I've always written emails. And then, so when you get an email that's like one or two words to me, it's like, whoa, like, but it doesn't mean that they're sending a bad email. It's just the way they communicate. So I have to like adapt my thinking. And I'm sure when they read my long email, they're like, what's well, way too much just, but it's just, it's just differences of communication. And that's really related to the difference of generations and how we were raised. You just have to be understanding. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that understanding, it's hard on people, right? It can be. Absolutely. And, and moving it through. 
So it's going to lead me to my next question. And so a lot of our listeners are young. They're the kind of up-and-comers. They're trying to listen to as many podcasts. There's a lot of messages floating around out there. And so, you know, in a few sentences, what's the message you want them to hear? Learn every day. Drill every day. And try to be a better person and a firefighter if that's your profession every day. Because everyday dedication is that's what's important. Every day you come to work, you have something to do. Like you have specifics you have to do. That's why you are a firefighter. And when you remember that and you do the right things the right way for the right reasons, like Lewis Mulkey always said, it really changes like how you operate. It changes the way you talk with someone that walked into a station. You know, how do you welcome them into your environment and show them around the firehouse? Or how do you take a young kid that's walked into the station and says, hey, I'd love to sit on the rig. Do you take a couple of minutes and say, absolutely. You put them on the rig, you show them around and you put a smile on their face. I think that's what we do. And when you start to operate that way in your profession, in your life, it really gives you a lot of that joy and that service. And that's what we became firefighters for. Awesome. All right. Now we're going to talk about you. Right. This might get a little tougher, but what do you wish that someone would have said to you at the start of your career? I wish someone would have told me that this is a very serious technical job. I did not understand that. And that was on me. I knew it was technical. I knew it was a tough job, but I never realized that you could go through something that we went through, like a line of duty death. It was never on my radar. I never thought about it. I saw areas and departments that had these issues but I never thought it would happen to us. It's the mentality of it happens everywhere else. I wish someone would have sat me down and they would explain these pieces to me. And that's why when you talked about my presentation earlier, the first 10 or 15 minutes, it's it's an awakening moment for a lot of people because the way I frame it is, and I say this before I do it, I say, this is me telling me my first day on the job what I need to expect. And then I go into it. And so basically what I'm doing is I'm yelling at myself because that's what I wish someone would have done to me. And I think after that, it really makes people understand the message because they realize that everything I said over those 10 or 15 minutes, they've either been a part of that, they've done it, unfortunately, and now they realize that I can't operate that way anymore. And it's a very real personal connection. And it's something I wanna focus on every day when I talk about this because you have to put your best foot forward every day. If you don't do that, then how are you gonna improve? You're gonna stay stagnant in life, personally and professionally. Awesome. Awesome. Now, what do you wish someone would have said to you after the tragedy? I wish someone would have sat me down and told me it was okay to go get help for feeling the way that I felt immediately. Eventually, we had that. We had a great leader in our department, Tom Carr, who made mental health training and awareness available to us, but it took some time. But I wish right after the event, we would have really focused on that mental health piece a lot more because I think it would have helped a lot more of us who struggled with it. We lost so many people so quick. We just didn't have a system in place. And it wasn't because we were bad people or we didn't want a system, but we never thought about it. And most departments, even today, they don't think about mental health and that's something they have to start thinking about. You're three times more likely, according to the National Fallen Firefighters Foundation, to have a suicide than a line of duty death in, in our uh, American fire service. And that's, that's scary. That is scary. All right. And my final question in this line of questioning is, what do you wish that someone would have said to you last week or last month? Like, what's plaguing you right now? It would be some things I have in my life that I'm trying to focus on improving my communication skills. I'm really trying to do better at those courageous conversations. I wish someone would have told me last week 
it's okay to have a lot more of those courageous conversations and it's okay to sometimes give that feedback that isn't so popular. I want to give feedback, but I want it to be very constructive feedback and I don't want it to hurt anyone's feelings, but I, I need that feedback too. I'm picking my fire chief's brain, my supervisor's brain, who's my deputy chief, firefighters, captains. I'm asking them, hey, what can we do better as a department? And I think I want people to tell me that because if, if, if I don't know, I can't make it better. And it's very important to consider that. Yeah, right back to your, what you kept saying, right? You don't know what you don't know. So if you're missing something, right. they don't tell us. Mm-hmm. How are we going to make it? Absolutely. Better? Absolutely. I got to tell you, this is one of the most enjoyable hours that I've ever spent. I was really nervous to have you in here. I talked to a lot of people that I work with and that I mentor. and But to have someone that's mentored me on the level that you have uh, was really making me nervous today. Oh, no. But, uh, it, was, it was just a great conversation. And, and thanks for taking the time out. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm glad you came all the way from Canada to the Holy City. You came and saw so many different places. I saw a lot of your pictures and you went to the Yorktown. You went to Sullivan's Island. I mean, you got a really feel of, you know, our city. And I I think it's the greatest city in the world. I'm super proud of it. I'm super proud of the people I work with for protecting the city. And I know the other night you saw Engine 106 and you saw Ladder 104. And you were super excited about that. You were a tiller, right? I don't like getting kicked out of my hotel two o'clock in the morning. But it paid off almost immediately because mm-hmm. we'd been by that station uh, right. a couple of days before. And then who doesn't love a teller? Come on, just that's it's serious amazing. business, right? And so uh, there we are at 2.30 in the morning sending out pictures. And what kind of surprised me the most is I was getting like immediate feedback on my social media, mm-hmm. which like it's 2.30 in the morning. Right. So even back home, it's still 12.30 in the morning. What are right. you doing up, right? Get right. to bed, but right. everyone was loving it. And, and today, just started all these conversations about a teller truck and all the different things in the fire service. It's what we love. I mean, you know, visiting so many fire halls and seeing so many different rigs and right. and perspectives. I can't get enough of it either, right? And, and so those are the, the cool, awesome parts. Run us down some stuff. Instagram, where can people find you? At Dr. David Griffin. At, is that Instagram? And then my LinkedIn is Dr. David Griffin, and my Twitter is at On a Mission. Right on. So look him up. Check it out. If he's doing a presentation close by to where you are, it's even worth traveling. And in Canada terms, if I traveled a thousand kilometers to see this guy, I think it was worth it. So thanks for being here today, and thanks for sharing with us. Appreciate you. Yes, sir. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Growing Up Fire today. Follow me on Instagram at Chief Coots to comment or send questions. We appreciate your support.